Welcome to the Public Morality. What do the Emancipation Proclamation, desegregating the armed forces, Japanese internment, and the Warren Commission have in common? They were created by executive order. Executive orders allow the President of the United States to issue federal directives. The legal or constitutional basis for executive orders has the multiple sources. Article 2 of the Constitution gives the President broad executive and enforcement authority to use his or her discretion to determine how to enforce the law or to otherwise manage the resources and staff of the executive branch. On his first day in office, President Joe Biden signed 17 executive orders exceeding the first day totals of the previous four presidents combined. Over the past several years, many have levied criticism against presidential abuse of the executive order. In what many claim as tantamount to governing by executive fiat, the charge is that the current use of executive orders encroaches on the responsibilities reserved for the legislative branch. Joining me to discuss the history of executive orders is Professor Matt Dalek. Professor Dalek is a political historian at George Washington University. Dalek is the author of numerous books and publications, including Defenselessness Under the Night, The Roosevelt Years, and the Origins of Homeland Security. Professor Matt Dalek, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's begin... Uh, by having you offer a distillation, what exactly are executive orders and, and what grants the president the authority to invoke them? Well, the president uh, has authority under uh, Article 2 of the Constitution uh, to uh, execute the laws passed by Congress. And as really the, the, the overseer, uh, the person responsible for the executive branch, um, they have the power to order or direct the executive branch to certain actions about how to implement the law. And, uh, and executive orders are one of full of, uh, of tools, signing tools the president has, including uh, proclamations, memorandum. Um, but I would say executive orders are, are the most high profile tool that a president as to use a, a, a pen stroke um, to try to create law or try to move a particular law in the direction that he or she sees fit. Now, I, I know in our, in our, in our pre-interview uh, uh, conversations, exchanges, you made a distinction between the Emancipation Proclamation and executive orders. Are there, what is the difference between the proclamation and the executive order? Is there any distinction? Well, I mean, executive orders are typically, uh, I would say, a, a sort of higher level of, of authority. I mean, you, you don't, in, in modern times at least, we don't hear of a presidential proclamation as being, um, as having the force of law, if that makes sense, and as directing the executive branch to undertake a particular and with some notable exceptions, including the Emancipation Proclamation, um, you know, tends to be more, much more symbolic and, uh, and much more, you know, celebrate 
um, uh, the Bill of Rights or something like that, you know, something uh, celebratory or patriotic sounding. Um, so, so I think executive orders have become, I think the main point is that executive orders have become in the modern era, I think the main tool by which pre the presidents use to attempt to um, either make law in the absence of congressional action or to try to implement the law in a particular way. Well, you said you said make law. Um, are, are they laws? I mean, uh... yeah, well, uh, I mean, look, de facto, they are right. In in fact, uh, they they do become uh, law. They have uh, the force of law until uh, someone steps in the Congress or the courts and says that uh, this particular order is unconstitutional. So, you know, Paul Begala, who was an aide to uh, President Bill Clinton, he quipped that executive orders, a stroke of the pen, law of the land. Now, that's, I think, an oversimplification, but I think it gives you the feel, and it's it's not a wrong feel, that a president, by signing a piece of paper, can direct the vast power, vast resources at his or her command uh, uh, to to change policy, to affect policy. So, um, you know, you can take any number of examples, and we can talk about this more in depth later. But, uh, for example, Franklin Roosevelt uh, issued an executive order February 1942 that established the Japanese uh, American intern uh, 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 internment camps. Well, that was that was I would call that a law, right? Even though it wasn't passed by Congress, um, Harry Truman signed an executive order nationalizing the steel mills during the Korean War. The now that was struck down in, by the yes, the Supreme Court stepped in on that one, right? They did strike it down, but until they struck it down, it was it was in force. Um, and you know, you can you can go down uh, the list now. Executive orders are easier to overturn in that sense, right? They're not laws that have passed through Congress, which are much harder to to upend, as we saw with uh, uh, President Obama's health care uh, reform. Um, so it's easier to overturn an executive order. But, yeah, I would describe them as um, as a kind of lawmaking um, um, outside the congressional process. You know, you, you, in your last answer, you, you mentioned, uh, uh, I think it was Paul Bagala who said the st stroke of his pen, um, which was also language that President Kennedy used during the 1960 campaign with regard to civil rights. And I'm wondering, is there also a fool's gold uh, component to executive orders is that they could solve problems? Because when Kennedy said with a stroke of his pen, he could eliminate many of the problems vis-a-vis -vis civil rights. And with hindsight, we see that those issues were much more complicated. So I guess what I'm asking, is, is, fool's gold insists that they're limited in scope. They really are not as widespread as actually going through the proper channels to get yeah. to make law. That's a great question. My answer would be that it really depends. It depends on the particular executive order. And importantly, and this I can't stress this point enough, really depends on the politics of the moment and the politics of the issue involved. Because there are some executive orders. So, for example, President Obama came into office, and I think on, on day one or day two, he signed an executive order calling for the closure of Guantanamo Bay, the detention facility, within a year. 
They tried to close it and they couldn't. Main reason they couldn't is that the politics got away from them, right? They couldn't figure out how to do it uh, uh, and Congress resisted it. Um, other executive orders, though, uh, I'd say are not fool's gold in the sense that they have been deeply consequential. I mean, they have what has flowed the order have been significant acts. So um, Franklin Roosevelt establishing the Federal Employment Practices uh, Commission uh, during World War II uh, or or Franklin Roosevelt um, interning Japanese Americans with with 110,000 roughly Japanese nationals and Japanese Americans. Um, you know, now that's not something he campaigned on, but that had it was hugely consequential, arguably the greatest violation of civil liberties uh, um, of any president in the 20th century. So, um, you know, I would say for the dreamers, you know, when President Obama signed that executive order, uh, that that also was consequential. Right. So uh, a lot of orders can. Um, they cannot achieve necessarily the power of the Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act that Congress enacted or passed in 1964 and 65. So you're right. But executive orders can push the politics of an issue forward, as with civil rights. They can affect a particular area of, in the case of civil rights law, the, of or affirmative action, which, which President Kennedy um, uh, uh, put into force or started to put in force through executive order. Um, and that can have spillover effects over time. Uh, last example, um, I believe it was President Eisenhower, or maybe it was Truman, um, but who issued executive orders about uh, security in the federal government, security clearances, and in part denying security clear clearances to um, to the gay, to anyone who was gay or lesbian. And I believe that it took decades before President Clinton finally that with an executive order of his own. Um, it was an order at some point was not really enforced after a period of time, but it was still on the book. Um, so I think it's a mistake to to minimize for all of their problems. It's not a great way to make law, but but it's a mistake to minimize their impact and the consequences that they can have on certain issues. Uh, on his uh, first day, uh, President Biden v. Executive Order rescinded the travel ban uh, on majority Muslim countries, uh, reinstated mm -hmm. DACA, as you just mentioned, the, the, the President Obama mm -hmm. uh, signed with executive order. Uh, the U.S. rejoined uh, the World Health Organization, and they also uh, mm -hmm. rejoined the uh, Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, if these executive orders are subject to the individual who, who occupies the Oval Office, mm -hmm. What is the importance of these actions when they always risk being temporary? Well, that's I think you've hit the nail on the head for why executive orders, um, especially ones that are driven by a by by politics primarily, um, are problematic because as we uh, have seen, executive orders are much easier to overturn depending on who's in office. So, you know, if we look at the past decade or so, um, passing Obamacare, or when Trump passed, uh, enacted uh, his giant uh, tax cut, primarily for corporations and the wealthy, 
Well, because those were passed through Congress, they are much more difficult to overturn. Um, President Obama, uh, one of the first things he did in office, beside uh, trying to close Guantanamo Bay, was to overturn President George W. Bush's executive order on stem cell research. George W. Bush had limited uh, 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 federal uh, uh, research into stem cell research, and uh, President Obama basically lifted that. Well, that's a neat example, right, of, of one president issuing one order, another president comes in and boom, it's poof, it's gone. Um, but, uh, you know, these orders can still be consequential. I mean, first of all, for the next four years, the Biden administration is committed to being in the World Health Organization. That's not nothing. Um, sure, that could get overturned. Over time, um, an order like DACA, even though Trump attempted to overturn it, the, com the courts stepped in, I think, and basically blocked his efforts. Um, it becomes harder and harder if uh, an issue, a policy enacted via executive order becomes embedded in the culture. If it has, if it's popular, people like it. Um, it's very hard. I mean, you know, can you imagine President Trump trying to deport the tens of thousands of, of DACA recipients? I mean, I, I wouldn't say he wouldn't do it, but politically, I think it would have been it would have been tough for him. So. Um, so these orders are a very messy way to to make policy and to make law, um, but they can have, especially on the politics of particular issues, uh, uh, a kind of lasting effect that's hard to see at the moment at a moment in time. And, and the stem cell issue was never overturned, I don't think, once Obama. As I recall, the stem cell, that was, that was, uh, that actually put uh, President George Bush, pitted him against Nancy Reagan, as I recall, on, on the stem cell. Yeah, yeah, because uh, her uh, husband, Ronald Reagan, had Alzheimer's and stem cells held promise for researching into diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's. Uh, but uh, President Bush tried to sort of split the baby, if you will, um, and and uh, didn't limit all research on it, but but did uh, he limited it to existing uh, uh, existing lines of stem cells could be researched. But he he attempted to to and this is the other point, which is you know these executive orders have increasingly become um, ways for presidents to make good on their campaign promises. So they have a very important political role. Now, you know, some people can say, well, you know, that's just politics, right? That's not really great policy making. But, you know, all presidents, of course, and they really want to keep their base happy. So you saw with, with Trump, one of the first things he did is to impose the, this, you know, this Muslim uh, ban on, on, um, on, on travelers coming in from majority Muslim countries. Well, that was an issue that he raised repeatedly in campaign. And it was a way for him to say that he's fulfilling his campaign pledge. So, you know, presidents can use them very strategically and in some cases very cynically to um, to show supporters that elections have consequences. You, you touch, you've touched on it several times in, in several of your answers. So I just want you to be I would like to just have you be specific that just because you have executive executive orders like law are subject to judicial review. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so the by the most famous a case is uh, uh, when Harry Truman 
signed an executive order nationalizing the steel mills, and the Supreme Court fairly quickly stepped in, and, and this is at the height of the Korean War, uh, said that, that what Truman's action was unconstitutional. Um, and, and there are times, although not always, but where the courts do absolutely step in. Um, President Trump, I think, had to rewrite his Muslim order uh, and executive order uh, uh, three times before it finally passed her in a divided Supreme Court. Uh, so the, the courts do play a role. They certainly can, can put executive orders on uh, and, and overturn them. And they can also let them stand as they did for decades with uh, President Franklin Roosevelt's executive order uh, uh, in February of 42, interning uh, these Americans. The courts refused to step in and declare it unconstitutional, really in many decades uh, later. So you see the absence of intervention is also being consequential judicially. Hey, you've mentioned Japanese internment several times. It's the only executive order that I, I actually know the number. <laughs> you know, nine, yeah. nine zero six, yeah. six. And, I, that one I know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I started numbering them, I think, in the early 20th century. And they went back to uh, uh, around the time of the Civil War to start numbering them. Um, and you can see in a way how they have become more central to governing, um, you know, in part of the result. They're given these sort of official numbers. Presidents have these big ceremonies often around them. They use them as documents. Um, and, uh, and of course, as the, the country, but really especially the parties, have become more partisan and locked in, and it's been much harder to get things done in Congress. Um, well, you know, as President Obama said, I have a, a pen and a phone. I mean, it's, you know, the pen is really one of the few left to presidents in a time, especially with the Senate, where the filibuster still exists, um, to, to, to get things done. I'm joined by Professor Matt Dalek. Professor Dalek is a political historian at George Washington University. Professor Dalek, if... Um, for example, the world recognizes U.S. participation in the Paris uh, Climate Agreement. I'll, I'll just hold that one up in particular. Um, the world understands that because of President Trump's actions now, uh, President Biden has put the U.S. back into the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, they understand that it's subject to the incoming president's you know, desires. So doesn't that erode U.S. trustworthiness uh, in these sort of global, on these issues of global uh, nature? Yeah, I, I think it, it, it gives other countries uh, the feel that uh, how reliable can the United States be over the long term? You know, how committed uh, is the United States to combating recognizing climate change and then taking steps to, to combat it in the international uh, community. Um, so I think that, you know, a lot of traditional U.S. allies, especially in, in Asia and Europe and, and Latin America, um, probably greet some of these steps that Biden is taking. And, and I'm, I'm just speculating here, but, you know, I bet it's prudent for them to, to greet these steps uh, uh, a little bit skeptically in the sense that uh, of, the, of the 
United States long-term commitment. Um, because as we've seen, these issues can kind of go back and forth. Having said that, though, the key on any of these issues is to um, move the issue, entrench the policy in a way that it becomes harder to undo and also to get it popular enough in the country to, politically so that there is a political price to be paid. Um, so an issue like climate change, there's a political price for a Republican nowadays um, to stay in, right, the Paris Accord. And even George W. Bush would have done what Trump did. You know, virtually any Republican president would have done that. Um, but on an issue like a DACA, for example, I think that that becomes trickier. You know, the politics of it are trickier. And so if an issue that that is sort of legislated, so to speak, via executive order, if that gets embedded in the culture in some ways, if it becomes popular. Um, and, and for example, uh, you know, who knows what will happen, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know that a, a future Republican president will rush to leave the World Health Organization. Um, they might, but, but, you know, that might last for the next 50 or 100 years. Um, so, you know, we do have to see, but, but again, the context is really, I think, what matters around so many of these executive orders and, and the kind of popular opinion and popular will. The Emancipation Proclamation, we, we've talked about it earlier, being a, more of a proclamation, but still has some tendencies that they share with, with, with executive orders. Uh, the common refrain that one is that one one taught beginning in grade school uh, that seems to live in perpetuity, Lincoln freed the slaves based on the Emancipation Proclamation. How would you respond to that statement in the context of this conversation, this conversation we're having about executive orders? How would you hmm. respond to that statement, Lincoln freed the slaves? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah, and not to dismiss the 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 symbolic and historic we would never do that on the public the rally. We would never do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and you know, so I, I don't want to dismiss it, um, because you know the president. And this gets to some of your other questions too. I mean, the president's words, and we certainly saw this over the past four years. The president's words matter, and the president, because the presidency has a kind of moral authority that it can um, um, harness or that it can can use for ill. And and in that sense, it really is consequential um, whether or not the courts overturn something or it has a force of law. In terms of your question, though, I think uh, uh, at least a generation or maybe more of historical scholarship has demonstrated uh, persuasively that really it wasn't Lincoln that fe who freed the slaves. It was the slaves who seized the moment to free themselves, right? Who ran uh, uh, for for freedom? Um, who struck out uh, uh, from the Confederacy and used the 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 military situation um, to take to to really uh, have their own agency in uh, attempting to liberate themselves and part of really the the Black freedom struggle. Um, Lincoln. Uh, uh, over time, over the course of his career and over the course of his presidency, really evolved on the issue of, of slavery and on the issue of race, you know, as Eric Foner and other historians have, have amply documented. Um, but, you know, that proclamation was 
again, it, it, it carried the, it, I will say that it helped to make the Civil War then about what it really was or what it should have been about all along, which was um, whether or not slavery could exist. And and it, it sort of recognized a reality to what was happening on the ground, but it did give it the force of government saying that the war is now really a, a fight about whether not just in the West and in the territories, but whether slavery in the South or anywhere in the United States uh, is legal. Yeah, no, and I and I certainly take your point. I would never uh, try to uh, uh, disavow the the moral aspects of the proclamation, but I'm, I'm but just with the legal aspect, I'm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Lincoln himself didn't believe he could actually end slavery by executive fiat, hence the need to ratify the 13th Amendment. Would- yeah, yeah. And if, and if in the long sweep of American history and the Civil War, I think the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution are, are far more weighty and, and significant um, than, than the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and, you know, some historians have argued they're even more significant than than some of the original Bill of Rights. Uh, and um, and those, those three amendments uh, are still uh, 13th, 14th and 15th are still the subject, of course, of fierce debate today uh, about their meaning and issues like birthright citizenship. Um, so so I, I, I think that's right. And I think it's a neat example of how how. Um, the power of either congressional action or, in in the case of a constitutional amendment, um, those have really much, you know, for example, prohibition, take a wildly different example, um, the constitutional uh, amendment um, um, overturning uh, a prohibition, um, you know, well, that, that still is on the books, right? <laughs> you know, so, um, or... The, the constitutional amendment lowering uh, the uh, voting age to 18. Well, that's still on the books too. So um, you see the, the there's a permanence and there's a kind of legal and moral authority that uh, that an executive orders typically lack. Well, you know, if you look at the history of, of, of the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, some even in the North, I mean, obviously the South was vehemently opposed, but some in the North took issue with it. Now, you juxtapose that with Executive Order 9066 by FDR. Was there a lot of animosity? I don't think there was a lot of animosity when when Roosevelt signed Japanese internment, but it it was only through hindsight that we look back and go, oh, my God, what what were we doing? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a really interesting history, and in fact, um, there's at least one whole book written about Franklin Roosevelt and he and his actions around the internment camp. Um, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt and a handful of others in the administration and without protested the uh, the establishment of the camps and opposed them. But those were really minority voices within the country. There was very little uh, uh, opposition uh, within the country. And part of it, I think, is um, it was signed in two months, about two months after Pearl Harbor. And the kind of hysteria on the West Coast in particular um, that was coming from the Army, from the FBI, and Roosevelt's executive order in 9066 did not, I believe, specify 
to the army to intern Japanese and Japanese Americans, right? It didn't single them out per se, but it gave them such latitude um, to do exactly that, which is what, you know, was, it was seen as doing. Um, and if anything, it was actually, I think, uh, uh, quite popular and welcomed among um, elected political leaders of both parties on the West Coast. And I think Earl Warren even, uh, who was then attorney general, um, seen as the great uh, 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 champion of civil liberties, was very supportive of it. Uh, so it was seen as a, a, a necessary security measure um, by a large part of the country. And, um, and there was little public, I would say, uh, or relatively little public opposition to it. Uh, and, and is of course now considered really the, again, the greatest abuse of, uh, civil liberties by any president, uh, in, uh, uh, in the 20th century. Bill Clinton served two terms. Um, he issued 364 executive orders. George W. Bush, two terms, 291. Barack Obama, two terms, 276. Donald Trump, one term, 220 executive orders. Now, if one just opposes these numbers with, with the person we've been talking about, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, who, according to UC Santa Barbara American Presidency Project, Roosevelt, in slightly more than three terms, issued 3,721. So my question to you, in the contemporary context, why the current uproar, uproar over the, the current use of executive orders? All right. So I think the current uproar reflects primarily partisan uh, politics and, and ideology, because it's, it's less, I think, about the numbers or the quantity of executive orders than it is about the specific orders. And so there were certain orders that President Obama signed, such as the uh, for the Dreamers, um, or or um, um, giving a a uh, legalizing for a period of time other undocumented immigrants, that uh, conservative anti-immigrant activists, many Republicans, opposed, right as 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 being illegal, as being you know un-American, whatever criticisms they level. Um, Trump's Muslim ban was obviously deeply opposed by uh, liberals, by civil uh, libertarians, and it was far in the courts. So I think there are particular hot button issues that executive orders touch. Um, most executive orders in the history of the executive orders are about issues that most Americans would not think about or not even hear about. And that's not to say they're not important. They are. But for example, um, there have been scholars who have made the use of executive orders in military land withdrawals in the past. Basically, executive orders that take uh, pieces of land, uh, federal land, and give them over to the U.S. military. Uh, orders that have environmental consequences, that have economic consequences, that have issues of federal power, uh, Native American uh, uh, well. And, um, but, you know, most people don't really know, right, about, so most of these orders are not, and most of the orders, you know, executive orders, I'm sure Americans at the time and since didn't know what they were for Franklin Roosevelt's three, whatever many there were. Um, with Roosevelt, I think 
what's interesting, though, is that, uh, so he, first of all, he did serve more than three terms, and he also served in the Great Depression and in World War II. And I believe he used executive orders and certainly executive power to establish 44 wartime agencies within the executive branch, just through power. And he did that before the United States entered World War for Pearl Harbor, um, but a way as a way of mobilizing the government, mobilizing the country to via executive order um, to prepare uh, as part of the preparedness campaign. At the same time, though, he had to go to Congress to uh, pass uh, the Lend-Lease uh, Act uh, uh, to aid uh, Britain. Um, institute the military draft, uh, also for the declaration of war. So he steps on the road for, for uh, budget bills um, to appropriate enough funds to build the ships and planes needed to wage the war. Uh, so you see the tension really between, you know, the use of executive power and yet still the need to go to Congress uh, for many of the big ticket items. What well, was the Manhattan Project executive order? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't know if it well, was. Well, you certainly didn't go to Congress um, for the money. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't think it was because I don't, you know, it was a secret uh, project. And, you know, executive orders do tend to be public, right? Very kind of in the public uh, domain, uh, especially in wartime. And I think it was uh, uh, the form the late Justice Antonin Scalia who said a president's powers are at their apex uh, in wartime. And the courts and the other authorities that, that might curb those powers tend to fall silent in wartime. And hence you see the suspension of habeas corpus uh, uh, during the Civil War, or Franklin Roosevelt's uh, uh, use of executive power to intern Japanese Americans. And so during World War II and then during uh, the Cold War, often American presidents have had a great deal of latitude, especially regarding uh, issues of national security. This is true of George W. Bush after 9-11, um, to use executive power and, and executive orders in particular to uh, 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 make law and pursue their agendas. Hmm. Uh, conservatives uh, have uh, argued that President Barack Obama used executive orders to achieve results because uh, he failed to, to get these things through Congress. And I'm wondering, um, is, is that a linear criticism that's void of nuance? Well, I mean, when I hear that criticism of President Obama from the right, um, I think it sounds very specious to me, right? It sounds, um, it sounds, you know, uh, you know, really cynical because, of course, you know, the vast majority of conservatives not only did not eject but applauded when President Trump issued executive orders to. Um, um, do all sort or, or issued an, uh, uh, use his emergency power uh, and issued uh, declared a national emergency over the border wall. And instead of getting the funds from Congress, tried to repurpose funds, uh, which, you know, a lot of constitutional scholars would argue was a an abuse of power um, and uh, or, you know, 
used his executive authority to to uh, uh, ban you know majority Muslim uh, travel from majority Muslim countries, um, or or any other number of other uh, aggressive orders that he used. So I think it really reflects a kind of um, hostility to a particular ideological agenda, particular policies on the right around uh, immigration um, or maybe uh, environment and climate change, um, science, uh, uh, issues of science and public health. Um, so, you know, it's it's the charge that, say, President Obama was acting like a, a king or a monarch, right, um, which some on the right accused him of being, um, you know, that, I mean, those same conservative Republicans supported uh, Trump throughout all of his uh, uh, abuses of power and signing of executive orders and expansion of, you know, basically trying to do whatever he wants in office. Um, so, so I think it's an, it's, it's not an argument on the level, really. It's not on the level. Uh, talking with professor Matt Dalek, uh, political historian, George Washington university, you know, professor Dalek, uh, based on your last answer, um, underneath, uh, this conversation of executive orders, um, it, it, it seems that 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 what we have now uh, is sort of a breakdown. In my view, these are my words: breakdown the separation of powers. In that, we, the Supreme Court has been asked to do things that may have to decide issues that may have been the role of the legislative branch, and we. Are we seeing more and more executive orders because of a failure of the legislative branch sort of forcing um, the executive branch's sort of last and best last option? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, um, look, when Congress does not use the power, the vast powers given to it under the Constitution, then the power tends to flow to the executive and the executive orders, not so much the quantity of them, but the type of executive orders that we see. So, you know, President Obama would have obviously liked to pass comprehensive immigration reform through Congress. Well, Congress wasn't able to do it for for a whole host of reasons and hasn't been able to do it for decades. Well, so now presidents basically come in and they say, well, I'm going to do whatever I can to move the issue of immigration forward, whether it's, you know, President Trump's more nativist uh, approach or President Obama's more uh, liberalized uh, view, um, uh, but use executive orders and executive power uh, to achieve some of those same goals. And, um, and it really, you know, in the breakdown in Congress, and a lot of scholars have, have obviously looked at this, um, I think is you know, a lot of it is obviously attributable to a system in which, well, we have, first of all, closely divided, uh, we have for decades now have closely divided uh, Senates where every election could flip the Senate uh, or flip the House. And if that's the case where every two years, one, one or both chambers can flip, well, members are trying to either hold on to power or they're trying to gain power. And the way to do that is not by, you know, meeting in the middle. The other thing, of course, in the House especially, but in the Senate too, is that, you know, members, especially in the Republican Party, they're worried about being primaried. And so, you know, any hint that they're going to 
say, sign off on a, on a grand bargain on the budget and entitlements with President Obama, as John Boehner explored, uh, well, you know, that's not a fly and sort of guarantees members who vote for it a primary. What would happen with Trump's second impeachment? And the seven, I think, Republicans in the Senate and 10 Republicans in the House who voted for Trump's impeachment. Well, within a week, I think, uh, Liz Cheney had one of her, her colleagues in her own party going to uh, 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 her district, to Wyoming, and uh, saying, we got to vote her out. And she's, you know, she's awful and a you know traitor to the cause, blah, blah, blah. Um, so you know, you get a sense of how it has become extremely hard for most members uh, to to really reach. And, and look, the parties are ideologically, uh, the Democratic Party, I think, is ideologically much more heterogeneous. And the Republican Party has become much more ideologically and racially, of course, uh, a homogeneous. And that has made it tougher, too. And again, it's all a long way of saying that that the president then the power really is left up to and a lot of these decisions are left up to the president uh, to uh, to try to make policy and um, and pursue their agenda and hope that it stands uh, up in court. I mean, what, what I really hear you saying in your last answer is that there's a collective civic immaturity in that if my side does it, the executive order, it's fine. But if your side, Professor Dalek, does it, then it, it, it's a problem. And, and, and that, that doesn't seem how Madison or Hamilton or John Jay drew it up. <laughs> yeah, well, um, well, look, I, I think that, you know, we've always had deep conflicts in this country over about the meaning of of what it means to be American, uh, you know, issues of race and identity, and so the role of the federal government in, in people's lives, and uh, and 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 the role of federal power in in the economy, um, and uh, and in that sense, you know, these issues are really no different. Um, I can't point to, I mean, I guess you could point to the to the early mid 1960s. When and even maybe in the 70s, when the Republican Party still had uh, a, a, a decent liberal block, you know, minority, but still a liberal block, some Northeastern Republicans, uh, liberal Republicans. Um, and the Democrats, especially in the 60s, still had, you know, segregationist, uh, Southern segregationists uh, who were uh, chairs of committees, very powerful members. And in that environment, you could forge a bipartisan coalition um, in response to the civil rights movement on the Civil Rights Act and, and the Voting Rights Act in particular. Um, but but that was a fairly brief window uh, in time. And um, and there have been proposals from, you know, say political scientists and others uh, to um, really kind of get rid of our two-party system by having multi- uh, rank uh, or, or uh, rank choice voting, uh, which would uh, encourage more parties uh, to come online, and uh, and so uh, it is a kind of structural problem with the democracy. But the way I think the system was designed was to be incredibly slow and messy. Mm -hmm. uh, on, on on one side, 
executive orders can portray, as you've alluded to throughout this, the conversation, a president as an, an you know as an activist getting things done on behalf of the people. On the other hand, does it risk? Uh, I'm talking about executive orders. Do they risk becoming a leading mm-hmm. a leading indicator as to the dysfunctional nature of governing? Yeah, I, I would say yes and no. I mean, yes in the sense that the the failure and really inability of Congress to address some of the nation's biggest problems. Look at infrastructure, right? You know, I think that there's general bipartisan agreement that the nation's infrastructure needs some help, right? It needs some repairs. And that's been true for many decades. And yet, you know, there's no uh, political ability and political will, it seems, um, to, to get that done. Um, so, you know, to get back also to your, your question about a kind of civic immaturity, I think that there is a, a failure here, a failure really of democracy to respond in a way that, that addresses, you know, people's problems in a way that, you know, people felt like Franklin Roosevelt was doing at the, during the, during the great depression, um, where they felt like, okay, the government was not all Americans, but a lot of them felt like it was on my side and giving me economic help, economic relief. Um, I think part of it though, is, is this deep strain in, in the country that, that dates back to before the American revolution that sees a federal government really as the enemy or as a suspicious, right? Federal power as being the root of, of tyranny. And, um, and, you know, and Trump and Bannon played on, on that, uh, I thought uh, pretty effectively, um, but it's hard to have a kind of functional democracy and functional government if one party and a big chunk of the co- country thinks that the government itself is evil and is out to get people, out to kind of steal their guns and suppress their liberties and, and take their money from them. So, um, so you know, not to be super bleak here, but, um, but I do think that executive orders are, are – a, a reflection in some ways of the inability t- to pass the sort of sweeping laws that 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 we would associate with addressing issues like climate change or immigration reform um, or infrastructure um, um, or poverty and uh, and yet at the same time you know presidents the government still has to function executive orders can have a, a serious impact on people's lives. And, um, and so I think they can be actually, even though they sound bureaucratic, can be a source of hope uh, for a governance uh, in, in this time of partisanship. Well, well, in your last answer, when you said they could be effective, I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, when, you, when you said that, in a weird way, so does... Uh, the inability to say to get things done and that necessitates the need for uh, uh, executive orders, does that in a weird way sort of act as a buffer um, to sort of prohibit the president from undermining the president's authority? So he's, he or she is free to use these executive orders, and because mm-hmm. of the, the conditions you just articulated, um, not being perceived as an autocrat. 
Yeah, well, and look, reality is two executive orders are, you know, as you said at the outset, as old as the, the, the republic, right, as old as the founding. George Washington issued uh, some, and I think every president has issued uh, orders and memorandum and, and proclamations uh, and the like. Uh, so, um, you know, they do have a role in, you know, constitutional system of our democracy. And, um, and I don't think that just because presidents use them that they reflect a kind of breakdown in every other area. Um, I think the problem, though, does become when, you know, people are so cynical about Washington and cynical about government and when Congress seems and, and, you know, Congress, the approval ratings of Congress are like single digits. I mean, they're so low. Um, then I think, uh, you know, executive orders cut a couple different ways. Right. And the other thing is, too, I should say, look, executive orders um, can be very popular. So, you know, if if the substance of an order has, you know, 70 or 60 percent of the support of the American people, well, I don't think there's a whole lot of controversy around it. Um, it's on the more kind of hot button issues uh, that that presidents tend to, to touch with these executive orders um, that that become, you know, that reflects sort of presidential action attempting to solve problems that are really probably better addressed in Congress and through the law. Last thing I'll say is the media, the courts, um, um, public opinion. Um, the way the executive branch carries something out, the fact that you have elections for president every four years, you know, there obviously are checks that, that may have been whittled down, but they do still exist on these executive orders. Professor Matt Dalek, political historian at George Washington University, thank you, sir, uh, for joining me today on the Public Rally. Much appreciated your, your insight. Thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure. The Public Rally welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.